the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. My name is Ed McKnight uh, and as you would have heard in the pre-pod if you've listened to it and if you haven't, go back and listen to it. I'm the president of the Auckland Young Professionals. This is the first episode in this brand new podcast, the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast and today we are talking about young people in politics. Who are they? Why are they involved? And what is it like being about 40 years younger than everybody else? So I'll quickly introduce you to the people we have in the room. Jules, shall we start with you? Yep. Hello, everyone. My name is Julian Paul. I'm 29 years old and I'm the Vice President of the New Zealand First Party. Hello, everyone. I am Adriana Christie. I am 26. I have multiple hats. I am the local board member for the Waitamata Local Board. I co-own a company called The Pallet Kingdom and I'm also a board member of Social Enterprise Auckland. And I'm Joe Berg and I'm 24 years old and the most recently retired chairman of the Devonport Takapuna Local Board uh, and as of just recently appointed as a campaign manager for the National Party at one of the local electorate levels and currently uh, working at uh, Kensington Swan Law Firm. Fantastic. And to tell you a little bit about the structure of today's podcast, we're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, We've got a Wheel of Fortune coming uh, where we are going to randomly select the topics that we're going to talk about, but that uh, is on its way from Amazon at the moment. So we've got a couple of ping pong balls and an old leaming bag, uh, which we'll try later on in this podcast. But the first thing we really want to talk about is I want to hear from each of you about how you got involved in politics, uh, what what those reasons were, and why is it important for young people uh, to get involved? Joe, do you want to start? Sure. Um, So I got involved in 2010, just at the time that the seven councils and the regional council were being merged in Auckland. And my focus at the time was um, there were a lot of things that I liked about North Shore City. There were plenty of things I didn't. And with a new structure, my concern was that we, if we got the same people, regardless of how much you changed the structure, we were going to get the same problems and outcomes that led to the Royal Commission inquiry, et cetera, et cetera. So at the time, I was in my last year of high school, um, and I was lucky enough to have a very supportive school community and, and wider community. Didn't really think I stood a chance of actually getting across the line, uh, and then managed to squeak across the line in the 2010 election. Realised very quickly that three years, despite everything I thought, it wasn't long enough to do what I wanted to do, so managed to get a second term along the lines. Uh, and just generally, towards the end of that second term, I realised that I'd contributed enough for now and stepped aside. But uh, the overall value and importance of young people getting involved was critically, um, well, it was very clear to me at that point because a lot of the spatial planning, a lot of the long-term planning for council for Auckland for the next 30 years was decided in that first three six and and arguably this next three years as well um so you know the fact that we only had a handful of governing body members local board members under the age of 30 uh is a bit of an, a, an indictment when you consider 42 percent of the population of auckland is under the age of 25. fantastic and i remember you telling me once that it was an interesting story of how you actually put in the form do you want do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah, um, so I turned 18 the month before I think uh, nominations closed in that particular year and it wasn't so much that I was aspirationally thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to stand for council, I'm going to stand for council. It was actually one of my 
my mates who were so sick and tired of me constantly complaining about how ineffectual the council was and how I could do a better job that for my 18th birthday I maintain it was quite a cheap move on his part he gave me a filled out nomination form with a ribbon on it and that was uh, and he said stop complaining and do something about it so that was how the, the nomination form was actually completed um, but yeah it was it was um, a comical but at the time um, well evidently very um, important moment for my political career. So I guess that if we want more young people involved in politics, their friends just need to fill out forms for them. Adriana, is that how it happened with you? No, definitely not. <laughs> I'll, well, in my defence, I was a bit older, to be honest. I don't think I'd have that courage being 18 and standing for any form of political role. So kudos for that. Um, my story is very different. You know, I've been really focused in entrepreneurship for the past 10 years. And since I was 13, I've always wanted to start up businesses that have a societal improvement. I started by having a shop in Newmarket, and I was working with communities in South America and empowering them. That went to a fail, which was great because I learned a lot. And, you know, then the Pallet Kingdom came up, and I just started realizing that I'm eager to create more impact. And the only way that you can create a lot of impact is being in politics. So I'm very fascinated by grassroots politics, you know, little things like getting compost bins in or empowering the community or reaching out to people who don't usually have a voice, like people with disabilities, homelessness. So I thought this role as a local board, even though if it's the majority's advocacy, it can lead a way for more change. Fantastic. And do you want to talk a little bit about Pallet Kingdom while you're on the topic of homelessness and um uh, mental illness. Yes, so the Pallet Kingdom is a social enterprise and basically what we do is that we go all around Auckland and we recycle pallets. This is a free service for big companies. that They usually pay 400 to $500 to throw their pallets away, which goes straight into landfill. And what we do with the pallets is that we dismantle them and we build furniture. So the great thing about our business model is that we're actually empowering and working alongside people that have mental illness. Um, before we had a big car accident and we lost our workshop, we had two homeless people living with us. And it really opened my eyes. Now, I come originally from South America and my family's really immersed in the societal world. So there is a lot of social injustice that I've seen since quite young. But really understanding the concept of homelessness here in Auckland was it was a great gateway for you know understanding policies and the way of people thinking or their financial background. So the Pallet Kingdom, basically what it does is that it reaches out an arm for people who won't usually have employment. Currently, we downsized. We had quite a big team and now we're a bit smaller, but we're still doing a lot of cool work and we're still doing a lot of um, furniture pieces. So that's cool. You guys should check out our page. Cool. <laughs> the little subtle plug. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Jules, you're actually, as you'd mentioned, the uh, vice president of New Zealand First. How did you get involved with that? Well, I guess um, when we're talking about New Zealand First in general, it's pretty cool that we've got two, well, we all, we all um, have very different stories when it comes to our involvement in politics. So I was always affiliated with the party since a, a young age, but um, I grew up in small provincial New Zealand. So you know, I grew up in a town of a thousand people and my, um, called Shannon and the Manawatu, two and my mother's from uh, Tiki Tiki on the East Coast, which is another small town and dad from Makatu on the Bay of Plenty. So my world was always, um, was very different growing up uh, compared to growing up in Auckland. And um, it wasn't actually until I um, had moved to Auckland that I realised, um, I guess, the difference um, in lifestyle that people um, in, a, in a big city um, had compared to where I grew up. So I grew up in towns that had um, a lot of poverty, a lot of 
um, drug abuse and and um, and joblessness. So um, it was kind of realizing the difference between the, the two worlds that I wanted to get more involved. So um, from there, I um, got involved in my local electorate and um, did some stuff in the in the last uh, election in 2014 um, for the Epsom electorate. And then just from there, it kind of escalated. So, you know, ended up going on the board of directors, got elected into there, and then um, into my position now. So, yeah. Fantastic. And it was interesting before when you said, Joe, that I think you said 42% of Auckland's population is under the age of 25. Um, But just before we, we started this podcast, Jules, we were talking about that 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 age segment are the people who vote the least so we've got a massive um, population of people out there who are eligible to vote um but but yeah they're not going going out and doing it or not getting involved um and maybe we don't have the answer given that we're four uh, four people who are politically motivated in in the room and uh the people the people who aren't politically inclined i guess aren't in the room but what what are some things that we can do i guess that to to encourage other young people to get involved or what what types of things can can people who are listening to this do to get involved i think um one of the biggest things is actually changing the language that we use when talking about politics, we have to make it relatable to people. Uh, politics is really important because it um, it influences every aspect of our lives, and people don't really re- uh, realize that. So um, sometimes when you hear people uh, hear, when people hear the word politics, you know they think about the prime minister, they think of uh, Winston Peters or Jacinda Ardern or, or someone like that. They don't actually um, relate it to how it affects them. So I think um, changing. Um, having a more uh, when we have discussions with younger people is um, talking about how it affects them so it could be things like um, you know going to school um, prices uh, prices of food or access to welfare or things like that so I think making it um, what we can do is is when we have discussions with people relate it to their situation fantastic and Adriana you're nodding quite profusely do you do you have an example of how you might do that well, there's always the power of storytelling. And I think, you know, being a young person, I've always been captivated by people really explicitly explaining what is happening in politics. And a basic story is how come, I don't know about you guys, but I have a huge student loan debt. And I'm still a bit frustrated. And I try to understand why does my aunt, who now has a $2.5 million house in Remuera, she started, she left university as a surgeon with no student loan. And, you know, that, that started to challenge my way of thinking. And I'm pretty sure that there's many people at university these days who choose actually not even to study because they're more focused on settling down, working, getting a home. And, you know, I've heard about that so often now that I'm, well, well, that I was campaigning in September. There's so many young people who don't understand politics. They don't understand what is voting, you know, what does having a voice mean? What does an Auckland plan mean? You know, how can my views be implemented into this? Who can I reach out to? It's just you really need to story tell. So, yes, changing language is very appropriate. Fantastic. And in terms of, uh, you know, say, say that I am a university, well, I was a university student actually and I do have a student loan, but if I, if I want to do something about that, Joe, what should I do? Well, if you want a whole student loan level reform good lord that's uh that would be quite a significant majority you'd need to build in in the house i think but um in terms of getting involved and getting active with politics i think it's very easy for us to to shift the blame a little bit and and we do as a society not us in the room 
around who's engaged and who's not contributing the right messages because you know to an extent it's it's give and take and we see a little bit more give and a little less take and in, in a lot of these um, elections local government elections really sh- uh, show that off in particular where we get um, shockingly low turnout but I, I was watching uh, Max Harris talking about his book the other day uh, and I know that he's been sort of posting a lot online recently where he says that um, politics in New Zealand needs to long-term move towards more of a values-based approach and, and values is something that intrinsically we can all uh, relate to or understand and, and I think arguably this election, the general election this year will be more about equity, uh, equities and values than ever before and realistically I think we're heading down that track um, but we need as many young candidates as we do young voters so that they have people who they can relate to directly. We also need policies that that focus not necessarily the token ones the student loan repayments but but ones that engage on a values-based level um with our younger population and ultimately we just need to get out the vote which is the i would i would say the perennial issue but it's really the triennial issue Mm. uh every three years we hear about parties saying they're going to activate the vote last uh, three years ago we had kim.com saying he was going to activate the youth vote um Thank God he didn't. But putting that <laughs> putting that aside, you know, we, we end up in this kind of discussion every three years, and, and it, it ultimately just becomes sophistry. Fantastic. Well, speaking of storytelling, uh, we're going to do this later in the podcast, but let's give it a go now. So this is what eventually will become, hopefully, the wheel of fortune when uh, when my purchase arrives from. Uh, China, I guess, is probably where it's coming from. But we've got eight ping pong balls in an old leaming bag, and we're going to pull one out. They each relate to a story uh, that we've sent to each of the panelists. And uh, we're going to draw out the lucky lotto winner. It is number three. Number three. And that relates to... Oh, this is a good one. This is homelessness in the city. And uh, Adriana, you're again nodding, nodding at me. Did you have any comments about... Uh, homelessness in general or uh, about the story that we're, we're talking about today? Well, related to the story, I was actually um, at Auckland Conversations last week and I listened to Sam, who's the psychiatrist who helped build the Housing First program in Canada. Um, and I was listening to his points of view and you know, I'm actually really excited that we're actually prioritising this because it is quite serious. You know, when I moved to Auckland you know, 12 years ago now, I was, you know, I never saw homeless people. I did live in Kaitaia for a while, so that kind of, like, changed my perspective of things. And then when I moved back to Auckland, you know, right when I was, like, halfway through uni, I started seeing streeties out in the street. Now, I come from Colombia, and I was I was grown up confronted by poverty, so I wasn't surprised. I didn't make that click until I started listening to people who were older than I was going, actually, I this, this is the first time I'm seeing so many people down on the streets in Queen Street. Now... In my opinion, there's different categories of homelessness. You know, there's the families that live in homes that might have done a, you know, financial troubles. You know, they got evicted from their houses. They have um, a credit check and they can't actually get electricity in their house or be able to rent a house. That's a serious one. And then there is the actual people who are rough sleepers who potentially have a drug addiction or have mental illness or... In my in, well, not really my eyes, but according to certain people, some some of them are criminals. Now, I really don't think that homelessness or sleep roughers are per se criminals, and I really wish we could um, create a different connotation to that. I'll tell you a different story, but based on homelessness, I think it's really really cool that this is the first 
what's it called? The Housing First Initiative is coming up and 400 houses is a good step. Now, I did challenge the panelists at Auckland Conversations because knowing homeless people and having a couple living with me, they would tell me stories of drug abuse. You know, they're, they're addicts. That's how they cancel out their emotions. That's how they feel that they're in a different space. Two of them, you know, I had certain circumstances that they would steal my tools and they would go and sell them so that they could buy their own doses. You know, it wasn't that they wanted to commit a crime, but they needed they needed that. They're addicted to that. Obviously, their stories is that they had a house. They got allocated into a room. They got evicted three months later. Why? Because of drug abuse. And they ended up back in the streets. And no one did that reaching out back to them. They lost their ID. They couldn't be bothered. They don't have the money of uh, printing it out. So they just started sleeping in certain areas. Like I know that, you know, Dunkin' Donuts at 1 a.m. gives away a bunch of donuts to all the streeties. And, you know, they've created this, this culture. Now, I'm very devastated that such a wonderful country like New Zealand um, doesn't have a I just can't really say can't give away homes because back in South America, I used to build houses in slum areas. And I believe that someone needs to pay something. You know, the moment that you sacrifice for your house, for your, for your studies, you know, it could be a certain percentage. But if it's strong enough that you feel that you're sacrificing yourself, you'll value what you get given, right? If it's given to you for free, you know, then you'll start building all this um, – I know all these funny words in Spanish, very proper, but in English you can just say slavery. You know, you're, 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 you're creating this culture of reaching out your hand and waiting for things to come. And that doesn't really help in terms of our society. So, you know, I love this Housing First program. I think this is fabulous. Two years to have 400 people living in homes is great. I wish that there's more support for people who are actual streeties, chronic homeless that with, um, you know, drug abuse, substance, rehab, and love, love overall. Fantastic. And just to summarise what that story was, this is that the government has uh, launched in partnership with Auckland Council the Housing First strategy to get 400 uh, chronically homeless people off the street and it, because it all starts um, at home. Uh, and I just want to want to add to that. I was up on K Road about eight months ago, and I was standing in line at Coffix, which is that wonderful place that does uh, two dollar fifty two dollar fifty coffees. <laughs> we all know it. You know, you're a young professional when you know the two dollar fifty coffees. Um, and I got talking to to somebody on the street because I love a good chat, and and he was a homeless guy, and he he just wanted somebody to talk to. And and I said, well, what's it, what's it like being homeless? He said, oh, I actually just, you know, a week ago um, got given a home um, from, I think it was from Housing New Zealand. And I said, well, yeah, how's that, how's that working out for you? And, and he said, well, you know, I've only slept there twice. Every day I come back here because I've been on the street for seven years mm. or however many years it was. And he said, and I look at these four walls, these four white walls, and I just feel constrained. Uh, and he said, I just want to come back and be part of this community again. So I, even though I've got this place, I'm not necessarily staying there because this, this is more home than that those four blank walls really are for me. And I, and I sort of thought, you know, this guy doesn't necessarily, necessarily um, need a house. He more so need, needs a home. He needs a community. He needs something to be part of um, to essentially make him part of society. So pe- perhaps the, the answer to, to rough sleepers or homelessness necessarily is, is not giving them uh, a, a room or a place to sleep. It's it's actually give, giving them a home and giving them a community because if we want to reintegrate them into society, it's not about chucking them off into their own little prison cell, which is uh, how he described it 
for me. Uh, did you have any comments about that, Joe? I, the National Party hates um, hates people out on the street, don't they? Don't well, they want to get the, get them out of the way for all the tourists? Certainly not any National Party that I'm part of. But um, <laughs> I, I do know that it's a multifaceted and it's such a complicated issue on, on many different levels. I remember when I was chair of the, the local board and actually a little bit before that as well, um, Housing New Zealand was thinking really rationally about the demand that they had for different kinds of housing. And, for example, in Takapuna, they had seven houses on standalone properties that were all in the too large category because Housing New Zealand knew that they had a big demand for one and two and three-bedroom properties. Um, not much demand for four-bedroom um, or five, but then a lot of demand for the six and seven and above. So it was this, this middle gap that they had a few too many houses of where if you placed someone in there, it was being underused, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, what Housing New Zealand came up with, and which I was very proud to support, but a number of my board members didn't, was uh, they demolished those seven houses and built in their place four uh, four story kind of uh, apartments in that area, which were of such a high quality and design that Housing New Zealand ended up getting about eighteen units back that were one and two bedroom uh, properties that were the right kind of scale and size for what they wanted, and it was integrated as part of a larger development which had two and three bedroom apartments that were then released onto the market. And it cost, the cost obviously was neutral to Housing New Zealand. It ended up having a more comprehensive development that was integrated between those who were state tenants and those who had purchased it. And it just, it, it said to me, this is a really innovative approach, but it took so long. There was a lot of pushback from some of the local community there. It, um, you, you know, these, this, that's just one aspect and Housing New Zealand being just one of the providers of social housing, that sort of gave me a bit of an idea of just how uh, difficult it can be sometimes to move this around and why the issues we're encountering now are probably in part due to some um, not necessarily as accurate modelling that was done a couple of years ago or even a little bit before that. I was also at City Mission volunteering about a month ago and I used to be fairly regularly every week um, at DePaul House, which provides emergency housing over on the shore. And in both instances, it's exactly exactly that point about the, um, that you make it about the community because um, they're they're you know dealing with multiple um, residents within cl- close proximity to each other. And you know at DePaul House, I was assisting with the homework centre with the kids there, and it was brilliant. It, um, created this whole kind of miniature community there. And even though it was only supposed to be emergency housing, so kids were coming in and out all the time, um, it, it provided this the sense of normality when, in truth, there were so many complicating and difficult situations that many of them were going home to, uh, whether they be... Um, difficulties in the parents' relationships, or the wider the wider whanau, or um, you know even just difficulties that they're having with the finances of the of the property, uh, sorry of, of the household. Um, and there's no doubt how homelessness is getting worse. Um, certainly, it's becoming more visible, and I think it's that rough sleeping component which is which is on display. And um, as much as I would love to say there's a magic wand waving solution here. Um, it, we we all know it's just so much more complicated than that, and all we can agree. I think I can definitely agree that we need to make this a priority, and we need to make take some serious action on it. But um, I, I'm I can't think what we would do to um, to really make the biggest impact. And I think that's what it sometimes comes down to is that you know we all we all recognise it's a problem. We all want to do something about it. Maybe the answer is that we need a few more uh, pallet kingdoms out there to get homeless people off the street. Um, but tell me, Jules, what does uh, what does Winston think of this? 
Oh, um, like, like everyone here, it's a, it's a multifaceted issue. It's not, it's not just the and, and just like what you what you said, it is not just the fact that someone doesn't have a home. We've got a breakdown of communitarianism in New Zealand. Um, we, um, we we're talking about a very vulnerable um, part of society who. Um, for whatever reason, um, don't have a, a roof over their head. So, you know, it could be just uh, eco- economic homeless where you've got, you know, families sleeping in cars, they don't have access to welfare or any parental or community support. And when I say community support, you know, you're talking about um, uh, organisations like, you know, Salvation Army or Pallet Kingdom or um, or even a, a church or, or something like that. You know, um, we, we, we've seen a, a lower uptake in... Um, people in those kind of community organisations that actually help um, people. Um, and then you've got um, a, a lot of homeless people who are, um, uh, you know, they're, they're the infirm. They're people who, who may have mental health issues. And we have a shameless record of um, addressing mental health. Um, you know, it's, uh, we, don't, we don't really have the institutions in place to, to care for them. And, and they don't have the wraparound support that other families do. So, um, you know, just like... So, Joe was saying there's no magic solution of just you can't just build a house because then you're just treating people like a statistic, you know, putting someone in a house. It's actually creating a community for people and, and providing solutions uh, for, for, the, for those people in their situation, not just looking at it as a, a blanket issue. And I think you've hit the nail on the head when it comes back to uh, communitarianism. Mm. Whereas, mm. you know, people aren't joining their, their their local tennis clubs or their churches, mm. you know, um, for, for a whole heap of different reasons. But at the same time, then we've got other um, other clubs and societies starting up that are incredibly popular. You know, in Auckland, we've got uh, Seafarers Club, which didn't exist um, five, six years ago. So so maybe we've got to go knock on their doors as well and say, hey, you're going to help us uh, do something about the homeless people uh, just down in the lifts, but mm. I'm not sure how well that'd go down. Maybe, <laughs> maybe this is a challenge to uh, the general managers of Seafarers to to see if, whether they're willing to do anything. Uh, I'll have to send the podcast to them straight straight after this. <laughs> um, you know, and if we're wanting to get more people involved, I, you know, speaking of storytelling before, I've got another little story in that. Um, AYP, the Auckland Young Professionals, we had uh, an economics uh, sort of educational event where we had uh, Shamabia Lacroix, the economist, coming along. And, and a girl, quite bravely, I thought, put up her hand um, during question time because uh, we talked a lot about voting, about housing, da 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 And she said, how do you choose who to vote for? And I, and I think that she was incredibly brave because um, s- some people sort of looked at her and thought, you know, uh, or it seems like they thought, well, what, what do you mean? You just, you know, you do the Google or whatever. But, you know, it was, it was someone who quite honestly said, look, perhaps my parents aren't that political. Perhaps, the, uh, you know, my school wasn't that political. How do, how do I choose? And I kind of want to um, throw, it, throw it back at you guys and say, you know, how, how do you choose? Yeah, well, and that's the question that a lot of people will be asking this year, inevitably, especially... You can't say national, by the way, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I I, I mean, I can speak about the way that I went through the process of kind of Mm. selecting which party suits me. And and, um, I I take Jules's point that some of us have longer connections to our parties than others. um, But I've always had the attitude that I'm only a national party supporter, for example, for as long as it aligns with my values. And I'd be lying Mm. if I said that any political party 100% aligned with my values um, and especially a, a party that is in government, you know, it's more of a broad church and and, and the natural reality of, of where the National Party is right now, for example, is it is just that little bit more diverse and, and spread. So there, w- there is a difference of opinion 
um, on multiple issues, I'm sure. Um, but that helps build the robustness of their policies. It it goes back to that point that I was making and um, not wanting to quote Max Harris too much, but I'm desperately Wait, who, who is book. Max Harris? I don't know. Excuse my ignorance. I oh, don't right. even know sorry. who Max Harris is. Um, yeah, sorry. Max is, um, well, he, he was dubbed by Q&A on Sunday as our <laughs> uh, one, of, one of our most intelligent and um, successful legal um, students from New Zealand. But he essentially was the chief justice's one of the chief justice's law clerks he then became a Rhodes scholar uh while he was at uh, i want to say cambridge it's cambridge just say it nobody's gonna google it <laughs> he uh he um, won a very prestigious fellowship uh and ultimately has started writing a book called the new zealand project and it's looking at issues like a universal wage and whether that will work in New Zealand. It's looking at very complex issues. I've known Max since um, secondary school debating days. He was a couple of years ahead of me, but he is a phenomenally deep thinker, um, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mind. And um, I'd be very interested to see from an objective point of view where he sort of lands on that because um, I don't think he is political, to be honest. Um, And if he is, you know, arguably slightly more in 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 a liberal sense, um, then, then perhaps me on the slightly more conservative side, but um, either way, he, he, you know, he, he is likely to present some really thought-provoking ideas, and I would be very keen to to sort of test those out. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the old, the question comes down to values, and and so he he was saying we need to shift politics more into a value space. But I've always asked myself, what is important to me? What are the values I hold dear? And what is the party that is speaking most directly to those values? And that's how I've landed in the party that I have. Um, when the time comes, and looking back in the 80s, you know, there was a complete role reversal in some in some regards between a couple of the political parties. Um, and looking at New Zealand First, for example, that would be a pretty good example of a party that, that broke away from another party uh, because of a difference in values, because of a difference in um, views in that sense. And so I think it's important that people constantly check in with themselves about what they consider to be important and what their values are and then see which party best aligns with that. Yeah, I'd absolutely resonate with that as um, when, when someone um, chooses uh, which party to vote for, sometimes they just rely on the media. Um, they look mm-hmm. at the branding of a party. You know, they might think, oh, you know, I'm a, um, I care about the environment, so which party does environment oh the green so or um you know business and national so they rely on um you know mainstream media to make the decisions for them and i i wouldn't i would i wouldn't trust that because just like joe was saying is that parties can actually change you know their policies can change the people in them change the way they make decisions change so um looking at the party and looking at their core priorities and their values um is a better what i think is a better way um to decide who to vote for. So for myself, um, New Zealand First, I, I don't agree with 100% of their policies, let alone maybe 80%, um, but, I do support <laughs> it. but I do support it 100% because the things that they prioritise the most are the things that I prioritise the most. And the thing is, and, and this is a reality, is that if you put a party, um, no party will get 100% of what they stand for. Um, it's uh, in... in, in, in you know, um, come election time, it's always compromise and concession. So um, what you have to look at is the top five things that that party promotes, uh, is that important to me? Not looking at something that, you know, um, a a party might promote a a particular um, 
a particular thing like I don't know clean waterways or something like that. Um, they may promote it as a party policy, but in their list of priorities, it could be number fifteen. So it's less likely from a pragmatic view that that would get forward. So um, looking at looking at values and their core priorities come election time, I think is the best way to choose which one that you align with. So not necessarily being so swayed by um, the one-off comments, by, by more of those values. And that, that's the way that's um, flown around the room quite quite a bit this evening. Uh, sometimes, I, I, you know, when I first got into... Um, into into voting and things like that it actually started when i was i think i was an intermediate i was about 11 or 12 and i was watching um, my first ever political debate it was probably on tv1 we'll give it we'll give a shout out to tv1 um (laughs) and i remember every ad break running back and forth from the second lounge and the dining room where um my mum was and saying oh you've got to vote for united future for the party vote well nobody's ever said that before have they (laughs) (laughs) or um or or, you know oh you've got to vote for labor now oh you've got to vote for national now and she kept on saying why and i was oh because he said something really good i can't quite remember what it was but i liked the sound of it yeah um but i'm trying to figure out whether this is 05 or 08 but <laughs> the way I'm, I'm i'm intrigued I, I i believe uh i believe this is back in 05 i think it was about yeah. 15 and 08 um but it sort of comes back to that well don't be so swayed by one thing you heard in in the new zealand herald or or in fairfax media or stuff whatever um a because it might not be accurate um but b because you've got to align with those surely not oh (laughs) the the mainstream media is always correct especially the new zealand herald and of course the new zealand young professionals podcast as well (laughs) but adriana you're you're a registered independent now i'm not asking you to give away um who you're necessarily going to vote for, but how do you how do you make that decision when you're not clearly aligned with one specific party? Yeah, well, I've only been able since I'm only 26. I've only voted twice. Stop bragging, right? <laughs> um, I'm still part of that 14 percent that's really undecided. To be honest, um, I think before then, I did help Nikki Kay in her campaign, like door knocking and passing out leaflets, mainly because I'm very fond of her as a person. Um, but I really do think that if you sit down and look at values and really understand what's you know, what's your priorities and what, like you were just explaining, what's in the list, what are the party's priorities, and that's definitely where you should tend to go. Um, being an independent is very, very tricky because, you know, I get bashed a lot by, you know, just wanting to be the cool kid that hangs out with everyone else. But I, 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 I <laughs> share, this is a, I share a lot of thoughts with everyone, right? Mm. Um, you know, there are certain things that I might not particularly um, agree in terms of like oil drilling or, or environmental aspects that for me, they're very, very crucial. But I grew up in a very conservative right wing family. So I think I've been, you know, I've been challenging myself to sit back and to really analyze what I personally feel that represents myself instead of what my family and my family pressures, because, you know, I would be a full on act party member if it was for my family to be honest and david seymour would be my bff but to be entirely are you <laughs> saying that david seymour is not your bff oh does he have one <laughs> i think he does, all, he does. I, I think i think that's a really valid point though as well because so many people have a perception and it's, un, it's unfairly labeled with a lot of younger um politically active individuals that oh you must have just learned that from home or you know mm. this is something that you've picked up from home and i think that just you know belittles it to an extent because mm. you know i'm the youngest of seven kids in my family we basically have a model 
parliament in my in my house you know i've got um a sister who who supports the labor party i've got a brother who supports the maori party i've got um you know siblings who i suspect are somewhere in between um who who will go for the 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 lesser parties um because they might have one or two policies that really reach out to them maybe united um future or new zealand first um so yeah i mean it's it's interesting because i've always got the label of being a national party guy in fact it was on um, page two of that certain national newspaper um the a couple of days before the results came out in the 2010 election and i remember just thinking that's so unhelpful but then you realize very quickly that especially in local government where a lot of people claim to be independent and some people genuinely are, um, but uh, many of them use it as an attempt to sort of almost hide away from from um, their, their, their political statements. And so, you know, I, I, for example, was on a board that was theoretically made up of six independents. Uh, but I can tell you right now, um, half of them were, were politically involved with various uh, parties and just didn't want that openly declared because they considered that if they were anything other than national on the North Shore and that could be attached to them and they wouldn't get elected. So it's interesting because, um, yeah, you get this kind of mixture of people who, who will use a label um, to substitute values. And that's, mm. again, going back to that core um, component, you should be able to pick a party and not be afraid to change parties based on the values. And um, mm. Wayne Mapp, who used to be the MP for the North Shore, I remember he was a member of Young Labour, and then he changed, that was again during the 70s and 80s, uh, he changed to national. Um, and and he, was, he wouldn't hide away from that. And there will be a lot of people who joined New Zealand First, who used to be National Party supporters, Labour Party supporters, Green Party supporters. Um, and there will be a lot of people who joined the Green Party who mm. used to be others. And, and there's a lot of interchange that happens. Otherwise, the government would be exactly the same um, every election. But... Yeah. And I think people change as well. So um, you know, people make decisions or create their values from the experiences that they have. And, um, you know, growing up, I used to, I used to look at um, how people vote um, at, at where they were in their life cycle. So, you know, I was a student once and all my friends used to vote for Labour because at that point in time, that's when, you know, free student loans, or uh, interest-free student loans were coming along. And then um, as they got older, they, they started voting for National because it was more relevant to... Um, where they, you know, where they, where they work, because they were working and they, were, you know, all professionals and 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 things like that. But um, you know, pe- people's values change and who who they vote change. I tell you what, Joe, that must be a very interesting uh, dinner table conversations when you've got the Hone Harawera, uh supporter <laughs> sitting right next to the Maori Party supporter. <laughs> Well, and, yeah, I, and then you have to throw in the in-laws, and now I've got uh, ten nephews and nieces as well who are starting to get to the age where they can they can chime in. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have fly on the wall of an Irish Catholic family's sort of dinner table. Oh well, I can't can't wait to hear how the conversations between the dot com supporter and the Hone Harawera <laughs> supporter go. Oh, they they wouldn't be too happy now. And look, speaking of the Maori Party, did you did you see the latest Colmar Brunton poll where mm-hmm. the Maori Party are up uh, up to four percent? That's up three percentage points. New Zealand First apparently down to 8%, uh, down 3 percentage points. How much does this worry you, Jules? Not, not at all. Like The, the reality that um, multi-party could get 100,000 votes, I think, is a fantasy. Um, and in terms of how political, um, how uh, the political polls have New Zealand first, um, this time, last election, they had us on 3.8%. So, um, and, and, that's, and that's a common feature of New Zealand first, is that they do poll under 5% in between, um, you know, uh, in the middle of a political cycle, and um, 2014 at this time we were 3.8 percent and got 8. Point something percent at the election. 
Um, now we're our average um, this month is 8.9%. So I think we're leading into the election on a strong base. So, um, you know, and polls are a little snapshot of a certain part of society. So I don't take it seriously. If they're continually getting 4%, that's when you kind of have to think, actually, there could be 100,000 people out there who will who will tick multi-party. So... Yeah, it's interesting. Polls are are, are dangerous because the methodology between each poll is quite different. And the questions, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, usually you have to wait for for a couple of them to come out. The Reed Research, the Comma Brunton... Uh, do we get a Horizons one? Anyway, you have, you have to get you know three or four of them um, before you can then start to map where, where they were last quarter, quarter before that, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that's where people like Matthew Hooten get... Um, these incredible kind of projections and, and usually get pretty close. But as Jules points out, there's always an, an element that's underestimated or overestimated. overestimated yeah. At the last election, um, it, it was all complicated and there was so much, I don't like using the term vote wastage, but there was um, a lot of votes that were essentially cut out because the Conservative Party got somewhere like 3.9%. There you go. Um, so they got painfully close to that 5% or um, you know, almost too close for comfort depending on which angle you look at it from um, plus MANA and Internet Party didn't quite get the what they were looking at but there was still a lot of votes tied up there. There was almost 100,000 votes that, um, in terms of the percentage that was then um, settled on for the 121 seats of Parliament were completely cut out and that's in addition to the missing million so um, it's it's really hard sometimes to figure out how we end up with the parliament that we do when the polls tell us the complete opposite. And just to explain what that 5% uh, threshold is, uh, for those who are just trying to figure out how to vote at the moment, uh, the way that New Zealand, the MMP, the mixed member proportional system works, is that we we have our electric vote, we vote for somebody to represent us and where we live, uh, then we have a party vote, so the party we want to support, and that, that vote actually makes up how many uh, MPs each party will have. Now, if a party does not reach a 5% threshold, and please chime in if I get this, if I get this completely wrong, uh, then those votes don't count and they get zero MPs. So if they have 4.9% of the party vote uh, and zero electorate MPs, they get zero MPs. Uh, and that's where it comes with the Conservative Party, where they have 3.4% Zero MPs, while uh, ACT probably got about 0.7 percent or six nine. Oh, 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 very accurate. I feel I feel like I was rounding up. I'll say that. Uh, yeah, they got one MP because uh, they won the Epsom electorate. So even though fewer people voted for them, uh, they had more MPs than the Conservative Party. And that's where the complication arises with the overhang. And at its worst stage, I think, um, or at its best stage, the Parliament was extended to include another four or five mm. seats um, when, the, when the percentage of, uh, well, yeah, the overall percentage didn't necessarily match where the electorate seats ended up going. Uh, and that's why the coattail rule, as it's often been referred to, um, with originally Rodney Hyde um, holding that Epson seat and then being able to bring in a lot of people behind him and then, uh, to an extent, New Zealand first when Winston was the MP for Tauranga, um, now the MP for Northland. You know, those those sorts of um, provisions have often kicked in, although for New Zealand first it's not really relevant because they're so far above the 5% um, that they get there by their own rights anyway. But that creates all kinds of complications where if you look at the fact that National, up until the Northland by-election, had 60 seats, mm. you know that should have constituted half of the parliament, and then there was that overhang, which was 
you know, um, to the multi-party, yeah, yeah. And, uh, multi-party act and the United Future. This will be very interesting from that point of view of this upcoming election because it looks like there will be some changes potentially in Ohario, potentially in other sort of little electorate seats that have allowed that situation to uh, to occur. And, yeah, it will be bizarre to see what the overall seat proportionality in Parliament will look like. And just to, again, explain that, that interesting coattails rule, which... Uh, always comes up uh, around this time, particularly for the Epsom electorate, because the the way they act, even though they get fewer party votes traditionally than the likes of the Conservative Party, uh, they're able to get more MPs, because if uh, a party has an electorate MP, then all of their party votes count to give extra MPs. And that uh, most notably happened, correct me again if I'm wrong, I believe 2008, Rodney Hyde won the Epsom electorate. They got about 3.1, 3.2% of the party vote and had five MPs in. Uh, I'd imagine that year New Zealand first probably got more votes. No, we um, 2008 we got kicked out, so we're actually mm. out of power. How many, how many party votes did you have that year? Uh, we, I think we were on 4.4%, so we spent a term out of, out of Parliament. Yeah, 4.4% of the party vote, so more than Acts 3.1, mm. Somebody will correct me if, if I'm wrong in the, in the comments section of the podcast. Um, <laughs> but, but certainly few, uh, a lower party vote, uh, but five MPs versus New Zealand First Zero. So those are some little quirks that you'll probably see coming out in the media uh, around, around this election because they always rear their head. Uh, and, and they are somewhat controversial. Mm. And uh, if Hano Harawera had won Te Tokoro at the last election, then I think um, the percentage vote that they ultimately ended up amassing would have brought in another two MPs. So that's how close they were to having almost three seats in Parliament, I think. Um, certainly that, that won, but it's, it's interesting because it used to be used as an as a, um, anti-democratic kind of argument. Oh, how unfair it is that this, this coattail rule exists, and yet almost every party has in some way used it. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I think it's good, though, because you, uh, as an electorate MP, you do get a mandate from, from the electoral system that we have, and you know, I guess it's an added bonus that they bring it in. But, yeah, Horne, Horne and the Internet Party were, were pretty close, but they, you know, they spent $1.5 million on that election and actually got a lower percentage of votes than, they, than Mana alone did, mm. the one before. So, so money doesn't necessarily buy love, happiness or votes. No, oh. no well, Conservatives spent one point nine, and then 95,000 votes went away, so... So disappointing. And just to wrap up with two two of the last stories that we wanted to cover off in this uh, podcast, it's young women making a comeback in politics. First, we've got uh, Jacinda Ardern, who was recently ele- elected or chosen rather uh, as the deputy leader for the Labour Party. She's just outranked uh, Andrew Little. Uh, as in the preferred prime minister stakes, I can understand why personally. Uh, and then Chloe Swarbrick uh, is now number thirteen in the Green Party list. Uh, Adriana, you're also a young woman in politics. What do you think? Well, I'm very fond of Jacinda and Chloe, and I've met them personally, and I've had great yarns with them. You know, I'm personally actually quite happy that Chloe has a position or a chance to be in Parliament. Personally, she's really, really articulate, and she actually does her homework. She loves to sit down and really, really study and really try and understand a perspective for her own and for her generation, and that's something I, I have to acknowledge. Also, she's she's a great businesswoman. Have you guys gone to her cafe? 
She's really got cool. a cafe. She's got a pretty cool cafe. Oh, what are we talking it's about? Coffex for? We should talk about the other one. Gallery Cafe down Mount Eden Road. It's called Ollie. It's cool. Oh, it's cool. And what I most like is that she's really encouraging young artists and she's showcasing their art on, on her wall. And, you know, I, I, I like that. And, and being a young entrepreneur myself, I, I, I actually acknowledge that. I'm a huge fan of Jacinda as well. Um, I'm not going to fall into why Andrew Little and Jacinda debate, you know, because I've met them both. And, you know, certain things that I like about Jacinda is how strong will she is and how dominant she is in terms of, gen- you know, controlling a conversation and engaging with people and all of that. And, and I think Andrew sometimes needs to work on that. You know, I've talked to him and he ends up looking at his shoes instead of looking at you. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> angry Andy is angry at his shoes at the moment, is he? No, well, I don't know. Like he's, he's a generally nice guy and, yeah. and, and, you know, it's, yeah. it's I, I can't say much. I haven't had much of a conversation, but hello, how's it going? How are you? Oh, you're a local board member. Cool. Perhaps his shoes have had better conversations <laughs> with him, given the areas looking yeah. at the moment. You know, in terms of Chloe and Jacinda, um, you know, I'd really like to know what's their personal interest and what are they wanting to strongly advocate for? Like, I understand Jacinda's really into housing. You know, she's really wanting to to support um, the middle class and and all of that. You know, Chloe, I don't know... Chloe's perspectives in terms of the environment you know I feel that I'd love to talk to her more about that because in my opinion I would love to see a ban on single use plastic bags and and I actually have had this debate with David Seymour in the past but economically I'm pretty sure that we import manufactured plastic bags I don't think we manufacture them here in New Zealand and our money stays here so if we're actually going to change or shift we're talking about money focusing on a compostable or biodegradable bag that is manufactured in-house i think financially we're all better off am i right i don't know so these are the kinds of things that i'd like to talk to both of them but i I love them both and i'm i just really hope that you know they'll continue doing great stuff for us you're actually right about the plastic bag thing i know we're going slightly off topic but i was talking to a (laughs) printer the other day uh who talked about that he had to ship in two tons worth of uh single-use plastic bags uh branded for for one of the for a very small retailer um, so if we're talking talking about two to four tons worth, like of, crying. yeah, two to four tons worth of plastic bags, um, single use for a very small retailer. So we can only imagine what it's like for for some of those those larger ones. Uh, but just just to wrap up our session today, I just uh, have to ask the the best and most important question for last, which is Jules, who was New Zealand first going to partner with after the election? <laughs> Um, well, I'll just make a point that um, New Zealand First is the only political party at the moment that doesn't ha- that hasn't ha- made a partnership with anyone at the moment. You know, the Māori are partnering with Mana, um, the the Labour Green Memorandum, National, and all their little puppets, um, <laughs> David uh, Act Party, um, and Peter Dunn. Um, and, and New Zealand First doesn't do that because, like Joey was saying before, we can stand on our own two feet to do that. So, the, the uh, I guess uh, what New Zealand First will who New Zealand Fest will always partner with uh, the New Zealand people. So whatever they decide on voting day, um, wherever the votes fall and whatever happens at the table, um, our um, number one priority is to put New Zealand and New Zealanders first. So that's, uh, that's my answer. I kind of knew that was going to be your answer. Mm. I'm sorry. Oh, it's, it's part of the fun of, uh, of asking these questions. Is I get to decide what I want to ask. <laughs> to, to, to be fair, with for um, you know towards Winston as well, because you know God knows that I have plenty of disagreements with with some of his policy positions. But but he does have that you know going for him. He has been in government with both sides, and he has actually been in government. And it's not a criticism of the 
Green Party. It's, it's an observation that, for example, some of the, the policies that they have um, are slightly coloured by the fact that they've never been in government. Um, and that, as you know, when we talk about coalitions, we talk about the alignment of values and everything else. Obviously, there will be negotiations, and obviously, it will be a question of who can do what and, and how. But um, you know, one party and a three three party kind of almost um, equally sized, very close sized sort of arrangement. If you were to take a Labour Green New Zealand First um, situation versus. Uh, the National Party, New Zealand First, or uh, ACT and or Māori or however else it will work out. It will just be a very fascinating post-September 23rd arrangement where mm. I think a lot of bean counters and a lot of individuals will be trying to factor in who will have the numbers and how it will work. But the position seems to be that Winston will be the kingmaker once again. And that's why Jules has a smile on his face. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a good conversation. <laughs> well, just to summarise, I guess um, what we're really saying today is that for for anybody, young people out there who are uh, deciding who to vote, the the key thing that you want to go away and do is do some googling of the key political parties and figuring out, figure out which ones of their top policies actually speak to you uh, and you know figure out what they're all about and make a values based judgment rather than you know something you necessarily heard on I'm going to I'm going to dig them again the New Zealand Herald or the or stuff or any of those other uh, type of news media outlets um you know uh, and just check it out and make it make an informed decision but more than anything else get out and actually vote mm. on election day and it all starts with getting enrolled um so we can we can everybody track here track each of us down online, Jules. We, we if people want to get in contact with you, uh, how would they do that? Oh, Facebook, I guess. Oh, you're going to get a lot of new Facebook friend requests. Is that the same with you, Adriano? You've got a lot of Facebook friends, actually. I do actually, um, which I like. <laughs> <laughs> I am a millennial, and um, Instagram. I'm quite strong on Instagram. I do have a website, but I really want to, f- you know, build that website focused on like local government stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that we didn't talk about quite a lot today. But I'm very fascinated about that, so my website might be a bit boring. Oh, and what what what, what is that website? Just in case people oh, want to check Adriana it out. AdrianaChristie dot com. and Joe. Yeah, well, I'm just recently back on Twitter. Um, not really tweeting much at the moment. So, what is your Twitter handle? At uh, Joseph Bergen. Um, and, yeah, again, Facebook. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what on earth is the purpose behind LinkedIn, but I have a, have a LinkedIn account. I think, I think we're connected on, on LinkedIn, I'm pretty Jay. sure we are, but I still don't understand what the purpose of, the, of connecting on LinkedIn is. But um, anyway, putting that aside, yeah, so I'm sort of out and about. Or you can reach me through Kensington Swan if, um, if the matters require it. But, um, but oh, the partners have, will be smiling. <laughs> that would probably be quite a different kind of conversation we'd be having. It would be um, kind of like reaching out to Adriana's um, uh, Auckland Council email address. So, um, yeah, I, anyway, so I'll, I'm, I'm around and about, but, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm probably more behind the scenes of this upcoming election, so it'd be better to get involved with the candidates directly, I would think. Fantastic. And I'm Ed McKnight uh, of the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. Uh, check us out online at newzealandyoungprofessionalspodcast.com. And my email is incredibly simple. My email is ed at edmcknight.com. Com. Uh, I also have a website, though I, maybe I'll need to update the content as well. We'll have a little uh, web, web content updating party or something. We'll do yeah. that after the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but seriously, if you are uh, interested in our podcasts or what we've got, the things we've got to say, uh, hit subscribe in your favourite podcast listening app. Uh, subscribe at New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast.com. 
Uh, like us on Facebook. We are the NZ Young Professionals Podcast, and I look forward to seeing you at the next one. Catch you soon. The New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. 